Good evening. Good evening. I am very pleased to introduce this evening's panel discussion entitled Writing in a Racialized Society. My name is Paula Giddings. I'm on the board of Penn. And I'm happy to see all of you in what I think is a very significant occasion. When I was charged with coming up with a topic for this discussion some eight or nine months ago now, I thought about it dutifully and then did what any writer with keen insights and understanding of the world should do. I call it Tony <coughs> Morrison, <laughs> who I will shortly introduce as our keynote speaker. Well, Tony said when I talked to her, what I have been interested in lately is what it means to be a writer in a racialized society. Leave it to her to be prophetic. As almost a year later, the tremors of racialism constantly felt in the life of African Americans is being felt today by Americans at large. So what do we mean by a racialist society or a racialized society? I at least understand it to mean a society divided into groups called races, whose members are thought to share particular characteristics that they do not share with other races. These uh, perceived differences in turn shape the relationship of these groups and members with each other. Over the years, the list of those characteristics have included inherited biological traits, as well as moral and intellectual ones. Today, as most people realize that there is no biological or scientific basis to explain this difference, races are distinguished on the basis of color and what is loosely defined as culture. Of course, racialism as an ideology, that is, as an, as an institutionalized set of beliefs through which we interpret our social reality, and as we have seen recently through videotape, how that interpretation can vary according to ideology. This ideology has not always been with us, and in fact has a very particularized history. Historians such as Barbara Fields, David Bryan Davis, and Christopher Lash all point to its beginnings in the 18th century, when large numbers of Euro-Americans were attempting to resolve the contradictions between their own struggle for liberty and that of the black men and women they enslaved. The contradiction was resolved by racialism, by ascribing inherited characteristics to blacks, which uncoincidentally made them unworthy of freedom. One of the primary characteristics which made us so, that is unworthy, was our alleged inability to produce great literature, thought to be the surest cultural measure which separated humans from lower forms of life. Thus, African-American literature was forged in a particular crucible 
one heated by the notion of proving our capacity for freedom at a time when even, or should I say especially, intellectuals of the rational scientific enlightenment doubted it. Immanuel Kant of Germany, David Hume of Scotland, Thomas Jefferson of North America, all denied the literary capacity of black people. It is within this context that we must see the heroic act in 1774 of the publication of poems on various subjects by Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American and the second woman to have a book published on these shores. One of those subjects in Wheatley's book was Christianity, prompting the slaveholder Thomas Jefferson to remark that, quote, religion indeed has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name, he snarled, are below the dignity of criticism. This may have been one of the first blows in the name of the American literary canon, <laughs> the creation of which was shaped by the hierarchical values assigned not only to individual works, but racialist literatures with Anglo-Saxonism situated highest on the hill. In the 19th century, it was Frederick Douglass whose literary eloquence had to bear the weight of freedom for the entire race, causing him to, as historian J.A. Rogers observed, quote, use his genius in the struggle for elementary liberty at the exclusion of any other subject. By the time of his death in the latter part of the century, racial difference was codified by science with its measure of skulls and facial characteristics and, in women, even the primitivity of their sexual organs. Now the moral, intellectual, literary incapacity, incapacity of blacks was not only quantifiable, it was inescapable. Now race became a meta-language in the words of historian Elizabeth Higginbotham having a power effect on the construction and representation of not only race, but gender, class, and sexuality. I see this so clearly in the biography I am writing about the black anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, who lived in this period, and really began her activist career when she refused in 1884 to leave not a white car of the train she was riding in Tennessee, but the first class ladies' car as it was called then. For this was the period when separate bathrooms would post signs, white ladies and black women, with all that those designations implied. But something else also began to happen in this period too. African Americans led by W.E.B. Du Bois began to appropriate the ideology of racialism minus its baggage of inferiority and brimming with ideas of spiritual, psychical, and emotional uniqueness and sense of destiny. This idea espoused by Du Bois in 1897 in Conservation of the Races reached, I think, an apogee in the 1960s and 70s when no notions of race traditionally used against blacks was now appropriated by them with a vengeance. In the last decade, this appropriation was, has taken place at yet another level, 
with the rappers. Then, and it seems now, this process provided a tremendous amount of power and inner strength which manifested itself so dramatically in the civil rights period and subsequently in the black liberation movement. But as I would discover years ago, when I went to my predominantly white school in this period, racialized discourse was suddenly silenced or criticized now that it was being used to fuel mass protest. I remember clearly in 1961 my mind burning with the images and then partially understood meaning of the freedom rides. And yet when I went to school, my teachers and classmates acted as if nothing had happened, as if they were dumb in the face of it, as if there was no language for such a discourse. It was then I began to realize that one of my roles as a writer was to reach down into that hole where the language disappeared and bring it to the surface. Among other things, the master of that process, it seems to me, is our keynote speaker, who has brought not only new ideas, but a new language, and I would dare to say, a new ideology and way of seeing and peering to American literature and criticism. And I cannot help but note the distance traveled from the days of Phyllis Wheatley to what I think will be known as the era of Toni Morrison. <laughs> I cannot help but think of the distance from the denial of Wheatley's literary capacity to the recent opinion of critic John Leonard that Toni Morrison is the best writer in America. Tony Morrison is the Robert F. Goheen Professor in the Humanities at Princeton University. He has delivered the Clark Lectures at Trinity College, Cambridge, and the Massey Lectures at Harvard University. He's a playwright, a lyricist for Honey and Rue, commissioned by Carnegie Hall earlier this year for <laughs> Kathleen Battle, with music by Andre Severin. He was a senior editor at Random House for 20 years, and is currently the editor for Racing Justice and Gendering Power, a book of essays centered around the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas issues. Of course, <laughs> watch out, watch out. Of course, you know her best as a Pulitzer Prize winning author of six novels, including, including her latest jazz, and also now as a critic with her publication of Playing in the Dark. I read that this Sunday, with the publication of the New York Times bestseller list, Miss Morrison will also have the distinction of being the first author 
We have a book on both the fiction and nonfiction bestseller list simultaneously. this Thomas Jefferson and weep. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Toni Morrison. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. <coughs> I accept all the compliments <laughs> <laughs> and the accolades, but I'm reminded of uh, a quote from Miles Davis. Don't call me a legend, call me Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I should describe at once my own understanding of the topic to which this panel will address itself, writing in a racialized society. It seems important to clarify my own preoccupations, not to point or narrow the discussion that follows, but to suggest in the strongest possible terms the variety of approaches to the topic, and to suggest the complexity of the assumptions already underscored in the words and the wording chosen to represent a fairly large area of interest. Also to stress <coughs> the powerful <coughs> impact the construction of race has on expressive language and the impact expressive interpretive language has had on the construction of a racial society. I am deeply and personally involved in figuring out how to manipulate how to mutate and control imagistic, metaphoric language and syntax in order to produce something that could be called literature that's free of the imaginative restraints that the highly racially inflected language at my disposal imposes on me. It's a project that requires me first to recognize and identify racially inflected language and strategies, then to either employ them or deploy them to achieve a counter effect, to deactivate their power, summon other oppositional powers, and liberate what I'm able to invent, record, describe, transform from the straitjacket that a racialized society can and frequently does buckle us into. How I try to do this is my work, but it's not my subject. My subject this evening, at any rate, is racial discourse. Racial discourse as one of the means by which we study and analyze American literature, how awareness of and or participation in this discourse enabled or disabled, paralyzed or unleashed the imaginative feats 
and linguistic strategies of writers. To begin, it's important to remind ourselves that in addition to poetry and fictional prose, racial discourse permeates all of the scholarly <laughs> disciplines, theology and history, the social sciences, sciences and literary criticism, the language of the law and psychiatry, as well as the natural sciences. By this I mean more than the traces of racism that survive in the language, and I mean more than the unabashedly racist agendas that are promoted in some of the scholarship of these disciplines. I mean the untrammeled agency and license that racial discourse provides intellectuals while at the same time fructifying, closing off, freezing knowledge about the race upon which this discourse is dependent. By way of example, I'm going to put you through some unpleasant moments while I read an early example of a scientific article and later on maybe a few more unpleasant moments while I excerpt from a treatise on aesthetics and the visual arts. Subsequently, I will also <coughs> read an example of this license as it functions in fiction. First, this is a mid-19th century uh, excerpt from the New Orleans Medical and Surgical, Surgical Journal. This article attempted to substantiate the association of blackness and madness by specifically identifying these psychopathologies to which blacks alone were prey. Two illnesses are described. One is called drapetomania, or the disease causing slaves to run away. <laughs> the other one is dysesthesia ethiopis, <laughs> or hebitude of mind and obtuse sensibility of body, a disease peculiar to Negroes, this is a quote I'm reading, peculiar to Negroes called by overseers rascality. <laughs> Now I want to read just a passage of his etiology of this dysesthesia ethiopis. <clears throat> According to unalterable physiological laws, Negroes as a general rule, to which there are but few exceptions, can only have their intellectual faculties awakened in a sufficient degree to receive moral culture and to profit by religious or other instruction when under the compulsory authority of the white man. Because, as a general rule, 
to which there are but few exceptions, they will not take sufficient exercise when removed from the white man's authority. Sufficient exercise to vitalize and decarbonize their blood by the process of full and free respiration that active exercise of some kind alone can affect. A northern climate remedies in a considerable degree their naturally indolent disposition, but the dense atmosphere of Boston or Canada can scarcely produce sufficient hematosis and vigor of mind to induce them to labor. From their natural indolence, unless under the stimulus of compulsion, they doze away their lives with the capacity of their lungs for atmospheric air only half expanded from the want of exercise <coughs> to superinduce full and deep respiration. The inevitable effect is to prevent a sufficient atmospherization or vitalization of the blood so essential to the expansion and the freedom of action of the intellectual faculties. The black blood distributed to the brain chains the mind to ignorance, superstition, and barbarism, and bolts the door against civilization, moral culture, and religious truth. The compulsory power of the white man by making the slothful Negro take active exercise puts into active play the lungs through whose agency the vitalized blood is sent to the brain to give liberty to the mind and to open the door to intellectual improvement. The rest of the paragraph goes on to describe how beneficial this is, this giving of Negroes the opportunity to breathe deeply <laughs> and exercise their brains because <clears throat> um, the exercise is expended in cultivating those burning fields in cotton, sugar, rice, tobacco, which but for his labor from the heat would go uncultivated and their products lost to the world. <clears throat> and then the world at large gets it, three million bales of cotton made by Negro labor for cheap clothing for the civilized world, <clears throat> et cetera. Now, what I wanted to call your attention to is not merely the content and the agenda, but the language used in the latter part of that paragraph to describe these things um, um, as part of the author's notion of imprisonment. I call your attention to something called black blood which, when distributed to the brain, chains the mind to ignorance, superstition, and barbarism, and bolts the door against civilization, moral culture, and religious truth. Uh, with the help of some compulsory uh, power from white men and the lungs being put into play, Vitalized blood is sent to the brain to give liberty to the mind and to open the door of intellectual improvement. Its claims to objectivity 
<coughs> are quickly and easily despised. It's interesting, however, still, for the revealing metaphorical language selected to underscore the pseudo-scientific one about imprisonment and freedom. Now that's an overt, even old-fashioned example of what can be called racial discourse. It may also be racist discourse, and I'm certain we would all agree that it is, but I prefer not to use that term because even though it's accurate, it doesn't get to the heart of my project. Identifying language or patterns of ideation as racist has some value, but it seems to me to terminate the investigation at the precise moment of its discovery. That is to say, once the conclusion is drawn, too frequently there's nothing more to learn or say. Once we dismiss that as saying, oh well, it's racist, then we don't have to say anything more about, about it and how it's constructed. It's like saying somebody is insane or crazy. The description is not really an explanation. Labeling, of course, has limited use. Now, Alden Nielsen in, uh, Nielsen in reading race calls this kind of language white discourse, discourse that whites employ to maintain a screen or veil between themselves and those whom they enslave. I use the term Africanist discourse to suggest something other and more than racial hierarchy because I really wanted a term that would imply not only the construction of whiteness and its dependency on a constructed blackness, I needed a term that would include writers who critiqued and contested racist strategies as well as those whose work endorsed and perpetuated those strategies. I needed a term that would indicate the possibility of acquiring new knowledge rather than the static, unproductiveness of terms such as racist and non-racist. I wanted to emphasize the point that such language, such discourse, had and has virtually nothing to do with the way blacks or non-whites really are. That, as Jean-Paul Sartre said of colonialist language, quote, these phrases were never the translation of a real, concrete thought. They were not even the object of thought. Furthermore, they have not by themselves any meaning, at least insofar as they claim to express knowledge about the colonialized, close quote. One of the most compelling and interesting characteristics about racist thought is that it never seems to produce new knowledge. I grant that a certain kind of 18th century scientific racism, racial Darwinism and so on, was understood to be new knowledge, systematized and documentable. But the faulty methodology and the vested interests of its pursuit, so clearly and unabashedly on display in the passage I read from the mid-19th century doctor, produce new error, 
not new knowledge. Racism seems able merely to reformulate and refigure itself in multiple but, but static assertions. I was interested in a project that had some hope of moving away from the stable moribund language designed to identify the racist, the non-racist, or the anti-racist. Racist discourse has no reference in the material world. It's designed to create and or employ a self-contained field to construct artificial borders and to maintain those borders against every assault. The term Africanness seemed to me large enough to hold the possibility of crossing those borders. But of course, you can't violate a border if it doesn't already exist. What was important to me, however, was to determine how and under what pressure and circumstances such language disables as well as enables a writer. My project is to examine writing problems such discourse presents in expressive and interpretive language of others, my own and the fiction of others. Now as I see it, or saw it, or still see it, the study is very nicely halved. James Baldwin once said that there is a little white figure inside each of us that we carry about, whether we like it or not. By us, he meant black people. And this little figure represents a yearning for white approval and love. I once wrote about that in my very first attempt to do fiction. I was trying to find out what he was talking about. And there is still, I think, a critical project to be undertaken concerning how African-American writers centralize and endorse whiteness in their work, sometimes precisely at the moment they are at pains to discredit it. Now that's one half of the project, which I haven't done anything about. The other half, which makes up the American literature course I have been teaching, is the shadow, the black figure that accompanies and is attached to every white person. Both of these parts are consequences of racial discourse. Both metaphors, little white figures lodged in our brains and undetachable shadows, are markers that racial discourse produces. And I'm interested in locating literary, imaginative strategies for racial hegemony, hierarchy, and figurations of dominance. How whiteness matures and ascends the throne of universalism by maintaining its powers to describe and to enforce its descriptions. Also, the impact of that power on the writerly imagination. Most important, however, is the development of a systematic study of these phenomena. Of course, there have been sharp scholarship and probing essays revealing and discussing the impact of racial assumptions and racial critique on various writers and thinkers or a piece of literature. What I am espousing here is not its ad hoc criticism, but its systematic study. For in that way, it should be possible to expand and enhance both the study and the definition of American literature. 
As I indicated earlier, the project is personal as well as scholarly because I am an African-American writing in a racially infected language. Certain assumptions, however, are just not available to me. Or if they are, I can't rely on them for the same imaginative uses and effects. There is a phrase from Robert Penn Warren's poem, Penological Studies, Southern Exposure, a powerful phrase, and I want you to think how it gets its power. Quote, shadows bigger than people and blacker than niggers, unquote. That is an impossible construct for me. Not the word nigger, which is available to me in all sorts of ways, but the cleavage in that phrase between people and niggers, between human beings and blacks. For the stress, he's only talking about a lamp on a table, but the stress in that comparison is dependent upon the assumption that blacks are not nor am I able to use the color coding so successfully as this poet does, and that virtually all white writers have at their disposal, whether they use it or not. Before I point to a typical use of the hierarchy of color facilitating a scene in fiction, it may be helpful to locate one example of the enforcement of color coding as it surfaced in the instructions to visual artists, the palette in which color was declared to have a very specific meaning and to have those meanings always. Apparently there was a moment when such meanings were codified and distributed to artists and painters in order to secure their symbolism. In 1837, the diplomat and historian Frederick Portal published a highly influential book on color symbolism, and he singled out the role of black for its negative associations, symbol of evil and falsity, black is not a color, but rather the negation of all nuances and what they represent. You can still find all of that in dictionaries and encyclopedia and instructions all over the world. Uh, what is interesting is to measure such descriptions and knowledges about what black suggests in cultures in which it is not paramount, in which black is fecund and romantic and fertile, et cetera, and soothing. <coughs> Red represents divine love, black represents infernal love, hatred, and all the passions of a degraded man. This is a little book, uh, but later on, it was picked up by a very influential writer on art practice. Uh, of the period, a man named Payot de Montebert. He used Portal as a guide and wrote a manual for artists in which the symbolic contrasts of white and black are developed. And you will know what they all are. White's a symbol of divinity or God. Black is a symbol of the evil spirit or the demon. White is light. Black is evil. White is the emblem of harmony. Black, the emblem of chaos. White, supreme beauty. Black, ugliness white perfection, black vice, et cetera, et cetera. But more than these samples of Africanist discourse in science, or what was called science, or permitted to call itself science, 
and in so-called universal aesthetics, or what was permitted to label itself or regard itself as universal aesthetics, I am interested in the manner in which this language works in and on the literary imagination as it is employed in fiction. Now I'm going to read you a scene from some very recent fiction and uh, discuss just a few items in it before I close. This is the scene of a man who is um, thinking about his mistress, whose name is Dolly. Bemused, looking at the floor, he saw on the rug a black scorched place where a cigarette had burned. Dolly Bonner. It, would, it could be rewoven, perhaps. Dolly Bonner. Yes. Pale hands last night that went tap, tap, tap against the cigarette. Ashes sprayed downward on the rug. He had bought her an ashtray, devilishly cajoling, obliging. Dolly, shame on you for five minutes. Oh, Milton, her pale hand on his arm. Helen, the Tobits, I'm so sorry. Pale face, too, with a soft mouth, downward drooping, lovingly, moist a bit from the last highball, daintily swallowed, pale. Why are you so pale, he had asked. Oh, Milton, honey, I never go out in the sun. I'm so susceptible. Her fingertips on his made a little throbbing current of delight there, like those buzzers jokes used to shock your hand. Then her laughter, almost inaudible, set her bosom all a-trembling. A pale, tiny arc of breasts peeped out slyly. He leaned back on the couch. Sunlight slanted through the room. Far off, a dog barked. A man's voice, rover, and thin yelps fading off into a gentle Sunday silence. Morning, Mr. Loftus. LaRue, Ella Swan's daughter, shuffled through the room with a mop. She was huge. She was a huge, slovenly Negro with steel-rimmed spectacles and an air of constant affliction. She came on Sundays to help out. Morning, LaRue, he said, raising his hand. How's your back? She lumbered past, mumbling something about misery, toiling up the stairs with a sullen, flat-footed sound, a great, aching hulk of a woman, moaning and groaning. Well, Dolly, he thought. He settled back restfully. Well, Dolly. He got up abruptly and went to the telephone. Now, what I want to call to your attention in that very first paragraph is the repetition, first of all, of pale. Its insistence in this passage would normally alarm a writer as a kind of fatal overdetermination, because minus irony, it's seriously problematic. The word pale comes up one, two, three, four, five, six times. Now, there are other ways to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pale, but I think the stress, the otherwise what we would call needless repetition of pale spots light, uh, uh, to spotlight his character's mistress's whiteness bolsters and exposes the racial infrastructure of the prose. His need to theatricalize while normalizing 
his character's illicit sexuality. And how does he do that? He's dressed white and then a black woman walks through. <coughs> this black woman who does walk through says M-A-W-N-I-N, <coughs> M-I-S-T-A-H, morning, Mr. Loftus. His name is spelled right. He replies, morning, LaRuth, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, LaRuth. <coughs> she doesn't say anything else but she lumbers past. She mumbles something about misery. She toils up the stairs, and she has something very interesting, a sullen, flat-footed sound. Once she walks through, and we never hear from her again for about 150 pages, he flips back to Dolly so that his illegal and illicit passion gets a kind of um, nobility and commonality by measured with this other character. Normalizing the character's illicit sexuality by having this black woman cut into and through his reverie. If she is there as degraded black female, as unappetizing sexuality, Dolly. Well, Dolly is more desirable by comparison, and the enterprise of lust now becomes the black woman's fault. Now, I can play also with racially inflected language by introducing characters that I know will cause the reader alarm, and I know may suggest sexual license and anarchy and violence. But I can't leave it at that. Such an introduction of such a character for those purposes could work only if I am able to explode such expectations, only if I'm able to demonstrate them as being insufficient development of character. They cannot, for me, be shortcuts. Erasing racist codes, substituting non-racial ones, is really not enough because that's really a very interesting but elementary grammar school exercise. What seems critical is the assault on the metaphorical metonymic infrastructure upon which such language rests and luxuriates. The passage I just read illustrates major markers of Africanist discourse in fiction. Color hierarchies, skin privileges, must be taken for granted in that discourse and in order to work in these and other texts. The second is estranging language, the orthography, the spelling that insists that the protagonist in the passage I read pronounces mourning in a profoundly different way from the black woman character who spends her Sunday cleaning his house, but writer is not interested in the differences subsequently between the speech of white New Yorkers and white Southerners. The assumption is the third one of knowledge and control of black bodies. The black women character in the passage um, uh, are somehow intimately known but they're also alien bodies and they're always assumed to be serviceable 
for perusal, for white perusal, for purposes of self-reflection, but somehow distanced, like a canvas, waiting without agency for inscription and description by some powerful hand. Thank you. pleasure to turn the program over to Arnold Rampersad, who will introduce uh, the panelists. Uh, Dr. Rampersad um, directed me to make his introduction very short, and so I will. Uh, but I'm sort of tempted to do it sort of, you know, like McLaughlin does. So, <laughs> so PhD, Harvard. <laughs> Currently, Woodrow Wilson Professor of Literature and Director of the Program for American Studies at Princeton University. Books, <laughs> The Art and Imagination of W.E.B. Du Bois, and The Wonderful Life of Langston Hughes, Volumes 1 and 2, which was named one of the best books of 1986 by the New York Times Book Review and received the Annisfield Wolf Award, the Clarence Holt Award, the American Book Award for Biography, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 1989. Editors. <laughs> Richard Wright, two volumes, the Library of America. Fellowships. The National Endowment of the Humanities, Guggenheim, Rockefeller Foundation, and a MacArthur Foundation Fellow, 1991 to 1996. That's all, Dr. Mahan. <laughs> oh, that was nice. <laughs> Was that signifying? <laughs> Is that what you call signifying? Um, no, my thanks to, <laughs> to Paula for including me on this program with such uh, distinguished and uh, richly talented uh, uh, people. I have two announcements. Um, with all that glorious introduction, I still have to make announcements, but they are important announcements. Water will be brought immediately to the table. <laughs> right. uh, you <coughs> are all invited to join us after uh, the program for a reception um, immediately outside. And Penn would also like it very much if you would add your name to the mailing list for events. Those are the two announcements. Now, how are we going to proceed now? Um, we have three speakers. Paul will join us for the um, question and answer period, but we're about to hear from three speakers. We have asked them to curtail, keep their remarks down to five to seven minutes each. In other words, about half an hour per person. Um, <laughs> um, we have 
five wonderful um, <coughs> people to answer your questions, so there is no need to ask me any questions. <laughs> However, I, I have some, some thoughts on this matter, and uh, at the end of the program, I'll be giving you my 800 number. Um, <laughs> Uh, these are intended to be very brief talks, and therefore the introductions will be brief. Let me introduce our first speaker, uh, Hazel V. Carby, who I think I can say confidently is one of the most important literary critics and scholars writing and teaching in America today. Uh, she was educated in Great Britain. She got her PhD at Birmingham University in the area of cultural studies. And her training, her unusual training, unusual certainly from an American point of view, her background in Britain and elsewhere, but above all, I think, her great intelligence and energy, um, all these have made her either the center or very near the center of the most important work being done today in the area of literary criticism concerning African-American uh, history and culture. Uh, I'm sure you know her great book, Reconstructing Womanhood. Currently, she is a professor of English, a professor of African American, and also of American Studies at Yale University. Please welcome Hazel Carby. I would like to situate my remarks, living as I do and working as I do within the academy, for me, writing in a racialized society also implies reading in a racialized society. And I'm very concerned about what our predominantly white society does with our cultural texts. And so my remarks will be directed toward those issues. There is perhaps more intense controversy over the meaning of the life of Malcolm X than over the significance of any other black leader who has ever lived. Spike Lee's announcement that he intended to develop James Baldwin's screenplay of Malcolm X's life has sparked widespread and acrimonious debate which has emphasized how Malcolm's death was merely a minor interruption to the ever-increasing political significance of his life. Now, 25 years ago, Marvin Wirth acquired the rights to the autobiography of Malcolm X co-authored with Alex Haley, from Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow. James Baldwin was commissioned to write the script. Baldwin expressed severe doubts and fears about Hollywood in his memoirs. And he felt that his agreement to write a screenplay was unlikely to bring him anything grief. Now Baldwin faced a battle to determine whose vision was going to control the film. And eventually, he was defeated. 
Now, over the years, two novelists, David Bradley and Calder Willingham, and two dramatists, Charles Fuller and David Mamet, have also worked on the production of a screenplay. And two directors, Norman Jewison and Sidney Lumet, have both abandoned the project. Now, Spike Lee maintains that only a black director can make a film of the life story of Malcolm X. And that to let a non-African American do it would be what he calls a travesty. And yet, Spike Lee is also very aware that if Hollywood had wanted to make this film at any point in the last quarter of a century, they would have done it. As he has argued in a recent episode of the PBS arts program, Edge, the only reason that Warner Brothers are making this film now is that they, quote, they see all these kids with Malcolm X hats on. They see all these rappers with Malcolm X included in their lyrics. And they can smell a dollar better than anybody. Now, if the publishing industry discovered a profitable market for the fiction of black women in the 1980s, the last decade of the century appears to be the appropriate moment for selling the lives of black men. It is very sobering to reflect upon the irony of the moment in which we live. At a time when young black men are generally considered to be the socio-economic society most at risk, at a time when it would cost $20,000 to send a young black man to Yale for a year, and $50,000 to send a young black man to a, to a New York jail, black males are being jailed at unprecedented rates. The figures doubled in the 80s. At this precise moment, the availability of narratives of successful black men have increased dramatically. Articles about black men who have made it are no longer confined to the entertainment or the sports pages of our newspapers. Musicians and basketball stars have been joined by black male film directors and even academics in the pages of our Sunday magazines. However, 
<laughs> However, the absence of any sustained public debate about the inadequacy of federal, state, and local responses to the conditions under which urban black populations have to live means that these success stories function like Horatio Alger tales, reinforcing beliefs in individual as opposed to collective responsibility for the social conditions in which most black people live. Now clearly, from my point of view in the academy, academic debate in the decade of the 80s appeared to be at odds with the growing conservative conservatism of the Reagan and the Bush years. Do you know it seemed at times as if life in the academy was actually dominated by questions about the monolithic and the monoethnic nature of courses in Western civilization, about texts that constituted all-white and all-male literary and historical canons, about issues of diversity and difference. Students on campuses all over the country formed movements which condemned apartheid in South Africa and vigorously worked to persuade university administrations to divest their economic holdings in that country. However, we have to confront the fact that the white, middle, and upper classes in this country from which these students predominantly come have simultaneously sustained and supported apartheid-like structures that maintenance segregation, segregation in housing and in education in the United States. Now it seems to me that we are living in a historical moment when because of the increasing availability of texts about black lives, texts that have the depth that have the richness, that have the complexity, such as those written by my friends and my colleagues on this panel. Because of those texts, it should be no longer possible for anyone to imagine that there is only one way of being black. 
Nowadays, it is difficult, though not entirely impossible, to believe in a figure that has existed in our society in the past to function as the voice of the Negro, to embody a representative black experience. Now, the cultural and the political disappearance of a figure who thinks and acts in a predictable way and who can be relied upon to represent the black community to the dominant social order marks the beginning of a series of political adjustments that our society has to make in order to come to terms with the very turbulent consequences of recognizing the multifarious and the diverse social experiences of those people designated as black. Now, as a society, we have to ask if we are finally ready to confront the fact that the processes of racialization, which are so fundamental to the formation and to the development of the United States of America, have invented, not just sustained, categories of racial identity. What do we do with the realization that race is a product of our social, political, and our cultural imaginations? And how do we release the very real power that these imaginary categories have over all aspects of our lives? There is clearly a very real disparity between the intellectual and the largely academic debate about the complexity and the diversity of the cultural and political meanings of racial identity and the material conditions of segregation, particularly in housing and in education, under which we live. It is unquestionable that the institutionalized racism of our society has and continues to have violent and horrifying effects upon our black lives, particularly upon our young black lives. But it is absolutely necessary that we directly confront the consequences of the ways in which we live the racial identities that are the products of our political imagination. Consequences that are way and who can
there is clearly a very real disparity between the intellectual and the largely academic debate about the complexity and the diversity of the cultural and political meanings of racial identity and the material conditions of segregation, particularly in housing and in education, under which we live. It is unquestionable that the institutionalized racism of our society has and continues to have violent and horrifying effects upon our black lives, particularly upon our young black lives. But it is absolutely necessary that we directly confront the consequences of the ways in which we live the racial identities that are the products of our political imagination. Consequences that are agonizingly evident in the material deprivation of our urban landscapes of racism and of devastation. Now from the vantage point of the academy, it is obvious that the publishing explosion of the fiction of black women, for example, has been a major influence in the development of the multicultural curriculum in universities. But the writings of black people sit very, very uneasily within these curricula because the multicultural curriculum seems to act as a substitute for the political activity of desegregation. It is also evident that in white suburban libraries, bookstores, supermarkets, an ever-increasing number of narratives of black lives are easily available. The retention of segregated neighborhoods and public schools and the apartheid-like structures of black inner city versus white suburban life mean that those who read these texts lack the opportunity to grow up in any equitable way with each other. Indeed, these same readers can be part of the white suburban constituency like Simi Valley or like the Connecticut shoreline up the road that aggressively oppose the building of affordable housing in their affluent suburbs and aggressively oppose the busing of children from the inner city into their neighborhood schools and who would fight to the death to prevent their children from being bussed into the urban blight that is the norm for our black children. For white suburbia 
as well as for white middle-class students in universities. Cultural texts about black people are becoming a way of gaining knowledge of the other, a knowledge that seems to satisfy and to replace the desire to challenge existing frameworks of segregation. My question to you this evening is have we, as a society, successfully eliminated the desire for achieving integration through political agitation for civil rights and opted instead for knowing each other through cultural texts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hazel Carby. Our next speaker is um, John Edgar Wideman. One of the, the greatest joys of being a professor, apart from such joys, those joys that come from the vacations, uh, extended vacations, <laughs> is the joy of uh, being uh, paid. I, I wanted to say recompense, but it still comes down to being paid. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but teaching books that you um, admire, love, that mean a great deal to you, and, and I've certainly um, had the pleasure of teaching the work of John Edgar Wideman over the years and, um, and know him to be a writer, as you do too, of extraordinary uh, ability. Um, he was educated at the University of Pennsylvania uh, on a basketball scholarship, but he was uh, so brilliant also in, in his studies that he became uh, a Rhodes Scholar and went off to Oxford. He began writing quite early in his life the novels, um, are there. I glance away in 1967, hurry home in 1969, the lynchers in 1973. After that, the famed Homewood trilogy, the short stories of Dambala in 81, Hiding Place, the novel in also in 81, and Sent for You Yesterday, which won the 1984 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Uh, more recently, he has published the novel Reuben and <coughs> Philadelphia Fire. That was in, in 1990, a novel based on the MOVE incident in, in that city. And of course, many people um, know him, some people know him best of all for his work of nonfiction, Brothers and Keepers. Would you please welcome John Edgar Wyden. person both because my mother was very strong and uh, because I always <coughs> was quite greedy, I finished my plate when I was told to finish my plate. So I'm going to try to keep within the five to seven minutes um, that I was told to keep within. Which is no signification <laughs> at all. 
but uh, probably path of least resistance. Uh, I, I'll just, I, I've been doing a lot of traveling in the past few years and a lot of thinking and uh, some writing. But um, <coughs> about two years ago, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, and I was fortunate enough to watch Mr. Mandela walk out of prison and uh, speak from the balcony of the mayor's residence, City Hall, in Cape Town. Uh, that was a special day for me, so special that I haven't been able to write a word about it since. I'm so intimidated by just the prospect. Um, <coughs> I mention that because what he said when he walked out, and he said to a group of us before he met the public, And what he said was, I've been hearing the phrase power of the people for a long time. And I've used it myself. But I really never knew what that phrase meant until about three weeks ago, while I was still in a prison cell, I knew that the people were on the streets. And I knew that they were going to take me bodily out of, the, out of that prison and that I would surely be free. He knew that inside his cell. He heard and felt the power of the people. Governments stop working when the populace becomes ungovernable. And surely that's what happened in South Africa. It, uh, it certainly was part of many other factors. The beginning of freedom in South Africa and Mandela's release, uh, the negotiations that are going on now, certainly some goodwill, but mainly the fact that young people in the streets of South African towns have become ungovernable. The government had a simp two simple options either allow chaos or to go in with massive force and try to kill everybody who wasn't behaving. About a week ago, I was in Los Angeles. And I went there because, uh, in my mind, I was seeing the beginning of some massive uh, movement comparable to Tiananmen Square, comparable to Mandela's release. And I still hold out the hope that, in fact, that's what I was witnessing, the beginning of something that profound. And the reason I feel that way uh, has something to do with what we're talking about today, uh, <coughs> racial language and living, trying to write in a racialized society. I think that uh, the cover has been blown. I think somewhere around 1492, 50 years before that, 50 years after, uh, a, a very interesting project was undertaken. And that was the secularization of the idea of divinity 
that Europeans, white European males, had about themselves. As the church began to change and break apart and subdivide, other kinds of justifications for that sense of divinity had to be found. Hence, universities <laughs> grew up. Hence, knowledge was divided into departments and owned by academics. And it's, a, it's a long, complicated, but simply, it's a, uh, <laughs> it can be summed up with, with the notion that uh, that self-defined divinity had to find justification somewhere. And that's the process that still we're seeing the tail end of. And one of the direct consequences of that process, or one of the reasons for it, really, is that um, if you are divine, then you have dominion over nature. And you know what we are. We're nature. So along with that project of self-deification is a, is a parallel project of keeping the other as part of nature to which this divine being, over which this divine being has dominion. And it's another way of saying what, what, what Tony's saying, what Hazel's saying. This project embodied in the language, in liberal arts, in the social sciences, this project of keeping the other, keeping, in this case, black people as part of nature the boundary and the division being kept crystal clear between human beings and nature. Some people don't buy that anymore. And I'm not exactly sure where I see myself in the next, well, however many years are left to me as writer. Because just as the black middle class in Los Angeles must be faulted for fleeing the black community and leaving the door open for other businesses to come in and exploit black people and other ethnic groups to come in and exploit black people. Just as the black middle class must bear some of that fault, I began to think that my activity as a writer is not altogether different. And I'm not talking only about myself, but all of us who write, to some extent, systemically have fled the black community. And it's not always through our own faults. And it's not a simple process. And it takes a long time to figure things out. But as long as somebody else owns the means of publication and distribution, etc., then we can only have a predictable role in that process, and it'll be a minor role. So I don't know where I'm going to go, but I do know that it's time to choose. It's a time of choice. And black people, Hispanic people in the streets of LA make that necessity to choose crystal clear. If each one of us chooses on the basis only of race or color, choose the side we're going to go to. Choose 
which set of values we're going to support. If each of us chooses solely on the basis of color or race, then we're all doomed. And each of us, and if each of us chooses to pretend <laughs> race and gender and class don't exist, that somehow being American and being part of this experiment in democracy exempts us from paying attention to those very real categories, or at least the reality that they manifest, then we're also doomed. It's five minutes. Thank you very much. Believe it or not, we are <coughs> on time. Um, uh, it would be nice, I think, to have um, a half an hour of questions and, um, and go to the reception around 8.30. Um, leaving now will not help. Um, reception <laughs> will not open until 8.30. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Cornell West is noted for bringing people together, and he certainly brought this panel together. They all agreed on one thing, nobody would speak after him. His eloquence is, of course, extraordinary, but it is overshadowed for me and for people who know him by the wide range of his reading, his extraordinarily precise and ready recall, his fine intellectual discriminations, but above all by the deeply humane and yet complex and consistent nature of what he thinks and what he says. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has called him our Joshua, which I would endorse 100%, except that I remember that W.B. Du Bois called Booker T. Washington our Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, du uh, on the other hand, Skip Gates is Du Bois professor at Harvard, so Bertino that. He was educated at, at uh, Harvard <coughs> College and Princeton University, taught at the Yale Divinity School and the Union Theological Seminary. And for many years now, I'm pleased to say, uh, um, as his colleague, that he's been professor of religion and also of Afro-American studies at Princeton, where he is also director of the program in Afro-American studies. He's published several books, uh, Prophesied Deliverance, an Afro-American Revolutionary Christianity. He's co-edited a text, an important text on post-analytic philosophy, prophetic fragments, uh, the American evasion of philosophy in 1989. Lots of people have reviewed that book and talked about it. And more recently, he has published a wonderful book uh, with uh, bell hooks. Please welcome Cornell West. First, say I would like to thank Paula Giddens and Penn for having the vision and determination to bring us together. This is a very wonderful event, but had a very tragic moment in the history of this nation. A tragic moment in the sense that we're still trying to come to terms with the ramifications and repercussions of institutionalizing a discourse of positively charged whiteness and negatively debased blackness. It is a constitutive feature of the emergence, the sustenance, and 
now the decline of American civilization. And a fundamental challenge of every black writer, this is why I think you have to read John Leonard's essay in The Nation, because what he understands about Toni Morrison's work is that she's able to actually do something that is very difficult, not only for black writers, it's difficult for every person of African descent in the Western world, and that is to critically love black folk to affirm a black joy and a black love in the midst of a civilization that, whose public face for black folk has been one of violence and terror. That's why I begin with what Josephine Baker said when she said the very idea of America makes me tremble, it makes me shake, and it gives me nightmares. <laughs> That's serious talk. Like darkest in jazz, she went through St. Louis, July 1917. USA is the most violent nation in the history of modern nations. <laughs> it is the most violent labor history. Look at the railroad strike of 1876 and 1886. Look at the history of vigilantism, usually from above, imposed against those below. Look at the history of the most unique institution in the United States. The closest thing we know is the lynching of horse thieves, and that's the lynching of black folk in which for every two and a half days for over 35 years, some black child and black woman and black man was hanging from some tree, some strange fruit that southern trees bear that Billie Holiday sang about with such poignancy. That's America, too. Look at the violence of our everyday life, the market culture that goes hand in hand with what Toni Morrison playing in the dark so rightly calls the terror of freedom. And it is at our peril that as writers and as intellectuals, we don't understand that the, the most fundamental thing that constitute a great and grand but flawed democratic experiment, namely the first new nation, the USA, its preoccupation with autonomy, with mobility, with individuality, has been predicated on the necks of folk who look like me and indigenous peoples and women and gays and lesbians and working people. Now you say to yourself, that's the majority of Americans. You're right. <laughs> that's Part of the problem. <laughs> That's why you can't talk about race without talking about class, without talking about gender, without talking about sexual orientation, without talking about region. And we don't have time to talk about that today. <laughs> but that's the framework. But it means, for example, when we look at the fundamental myth or one of the fundamental myths of the United States is what? The frontier. Well, let's critically interrogate this myth. The distinction between civilization and savagery, between the metropolis and wilderness, a conception of freedom predicated on a migration outward so that you get beyond the boundaries and you transgress the limits and you go beyond that which is circumscribed. Now, of course, in one sense, it's very, there's some very positive elements here. We have to read this dialectically. 
it does provide a certain cutting edge against parochialism and provincialism at its best, an expansive sense of what it is to be alive, an attempt to always enlarge one's horizons. Yes, I affirm that moment. But the other moment is one of imperial expansion and conquest and dispossession and subordination and devaluation and degradation of others. The frontier myth is predicated on a notion of others to be trampled upon for purposes of morally regenerating and rejuvenating and reinvigorating a white subject doing the expanding. What a notion. Richard Slotkin has talked about this, the myth of American regeneration, the fatal environment in which red bodies become the very playground for the extension of white virility. Scarred bodies, dead bodies, and black labor becomes the very basis for white economic expansion. I was debating Arthur Schlesinger last night. And uh, we had a nice dialogue, but I tried to be kind because <laughs> I didn't want to say, why didn't you talk about the age of Jackson in which it was the subjugation of indigenous peoples and at the same time the disenfranchisement of black folk in the name of expansion of democracy. That's heron folk democracy. That's racially specific democracy. That's white folks democracy. Still positive. I'm a radical Democrat, but I understand what, who pays the cost for that expansion. Fundamental cost of expansion. And so at the same time, this sense of mobility, individuality, and autonomy, Henry Ford understood it. That's what the car is all about. Mobility, individuality, autonomy, right? This Emersonian onward transitions, upward crossings. It's Emerson's everything good on the highway. It's Huck on the boat, Ahab on the ship. Jack Kuryak on the road. Deeply American, deeply American, but at the same time, it deals with the terror of freedom, a fundamental problematic of every American text that is substantive. What does it mean to go beyond the boundaries? What about death? You gonna die? What about the tragic? There are some intractable limits, disease. What about dread and despair? Melville understood it. I will talk about the constraints, he said. But the terror of freedom from the vantage point of victims of Afro-Americans, victims who are Afro-Americans, but more than victims always agents as well, is that this terror of freedom often takes the form of a freedom to terrorize us. Racial domination is part of the background conditions for this preoccupation with freedom. What a story. And the challenge becomes, and here I shall sit down, how in the world do people of African descent <coughs> understand that Predominantly white struggle with the terror of freedom. 
open enough to embrace its insights, but honest enough to understand its limitations, to understand that we are targets of that psychic and physical tear every day. The tragic moment was before April 29th, 1992. Some people need a wake-up call to understand how tragic it is, but tragic far before then. But as targets of that tear, how does one then tell a tale about a nation of freedom lovers and terrorizers at the same time, but to do it in such a way that you can still affirm the humanity of those who have been targets of the tear without deifying these human beings, these flawed human beings who are Africans in the new world, but a, 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 and yet still find a place where they can love themselves, love each other, and then have the courage to love other folk who are not the same color. To remind them of the humanity they themselves often lose as they deal with the terror of freedom and the terrorizing of people of color. What a challenge. And I think it's no accident that every grand black writer I know falls back on black music. Because musicians can do it at their best. Because there was more space for black music to develop that sense of taking black humanity for granted, something that Ethiopians understand since they've never been colonized, never had white supremacist tricks played on their mind as the ghetto boys would put it. Taking it for granted. And we reflect on writing in a racialized society. And we look at the Zora Neale Hurston and the Richard Wrights and the James Baldwins, and the Toni Morrisons, and a host, host of others, John Weidemann and others, were, sh were shook by the violence in the text, the horror in this text, the terror in the text, and at the same time juxtaposed with the black love and joy in community, even if it's undergoing disintegration even if it's self-afflicting at the same time, it is self-affirming. Sounds contradiction, oxymoronic, but it's part of trying to keep track of that black humanity. That seems to me fundamentally in the name of every black artist and every black human being, one would hope all human beings, very difficult to raise society. That's a challenge, it seems to me, and it's a challenge that, in my own view, Toni Morrison has met more deeply, more critically, than anyone who I know has picked up, who has picked up the pen. And hence, though she doesn't like to be a monument, and I don't like monumentalist conceptions of history, she <laughs> is a monument to the, to the degree to which it is impossible to pick up her text and not be reminded by these various aspects of the problematic that I'm talking about. And to the degree she does that, is a degree to which the next generation can build on the best of what this particular slice of humanity had to give under the most adverse 
circumstances in a very peculiar society at a frightening moment in the history of this globe. Thank you. This is the um, question and answer period of the program. Um, we have two microphones set out there, and we would like very much for you to... Um, using the floor mics will be impossible, so would you please repeat each question so that we can get, on, get it on the tape? Okay, I'll try to do that. <laughs> I'd like to ask you to refrain, uh, one or two of you, from uh, offering us extended statements on, this, on the question. <laughs> um, so let us now have some questions addressed either to the group or to one person or more. Uh, uh, would you stand, please? May I repeat the question? Um, Tony Morrison did not speak uh, about the events in Los Angeles. What does she think of them? <laughs> I think your question is, what can we do? And I don't have any answers at the moment. Um, I've feel, have been feeling very hollow and a little bit paralyzed, and I think there are um, good reasons for that. My short, succinct response to those inquiries are generally that I understand in a way that I think I never understood before that white people are a real problem. And it is very important that the weight for the answer to that question come from them. We have one question here, and then there's a gentleman in the back uh, next. Thank you very much. Questioner would like us to comment on the racialized language used by the media in connection with the Los Angeles events. 
There is no language, as Tony pointed out, that is not racialized. And that's the first part of our education, uh, to look at the language for what it is and to try to learn what the traps are and uh, <coughs> how the nets work. It's interesting to see and hear not only what 10,000 um, journalists, reporters said, but to see how the visual language of TV, for instance, is so highly charged and loaded with a history of its own and has the power to frame events and begin to comment on events without one word being spoken. And the initial attempt was to frame the riot, or excuse me, to frame what was going on as Watts all over again. So much so that sometimes one couldn't tell whether one was watching film from 1965 or 92. And now that was not accidental, because within that, call it a, a frame of discourse, riots are what we're watching. We're not watching a rebellion, we're watching a riot. And then the other unspoken truth is that people who riot are black. They're irrational, they're out of control. They need to be policed. This is, what's happen this is what happens when you don't have a strong police force. All that information just comes jumping up to the surface, it's there, people are in possession of it, and that shortcuts, short circuits, any real discussion of what might be occurring. Mm -hmm. That's just one small example. Yes, in, in addition, I'd like to say one was the, uh, the multiracial character of those who were part and parcel of, of the uprising needs to be accented, and the press did not want to talk about we talking about young white brothers and sisters who were out there, you see. They didn't want to highlight that. They were there. And then they tried to make it a mono class. It's just a black underclass. Whereas we discovered 37% of those who were arrested had a full-time job. That sounds like working class. They're working poor, but they had a full-time job. That's the lower echelons, more than likely, of a devastated industrial class owing to deindustrialization in the last 15 years. But last but not least, in talking about 1965, I think it's very important to note that Watts lasted five and a half days. And there's reasons for that. It lasted five and a half days because Watts' rebellion occurred in which social motion and a social movement was already in place that had begun in Montgomery in 1955. And that therefore you had networks, organized networks. You had, you had groups, you had gatherings that could sustain a rebellion Detroit was even a higher level in 1967. You could sustain a rebellion, whereas in, in 1992, there's no social movement in place. We've got rage, not just psychological, it's political in that regard. Karen was right in his, his distinction. But that's a very important distinction to make because those of us who were so outraged and felt powerless and, 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 and wanted to be able to build upon those tragic lives, all each and every one of those 58 brothers and sisters who die, and at the same time recognize that without any organizing and mobilizing activity <coughs> in place, all we had were the racist representations on media and the gendered ones. 95% okay? of those participated were male, which is also very important, because the racist slant didn't mean it would focus on black men 
as if they did all of the criminal activity in terms of you know killing innocent person, which is a crime. Killing innocent people is a crime. It's just that it's hard to convince dominant white America that killing black folk is also a crime and so forth. <laughs> but it is a crime. You know. But it was gendered as well, so that's another dimension. Oh, well, we have several questions. Um, over there first. <laughs> we have many, many questions. Let's try to make it quick. <laughs> you have left us speechless, as, as Mr. Mandela told Fred Carpel, Ted Carpel. You were telling me um, that someone on this side had a. Well, I'll speak to your question. I won't have a lot of information, but I thought it might be useful to distinguish between what you're calling data and the statistics and the composition of cities and new information, some of which is sociological, historical, and journalistic, to distinguish between the accumulation of such data and a writer's effort to make it have meaning to move from data to some form of knowledge to some sort of perhaps even <laughs> wisdom. The data is important. There have been instances in which John Weidemann has focused on a very, exactly what you're describing, a very current event in Philadelphia. Part of his research was uh, on-site field work. Part of it was invention but all of it was to transfer disparate data into meaning and to something that is intellectually provocative and viscerally and emotionally felt. So I think that's, you know, some writers are very much connected to contemporary current events or historical ones. 
but to record data is not really what a fiction writer does. That is a legitimate function of history and even journalism and documentation. And that always has its own slant and its own interpretation. The data you select to um, um, focus on is already a problem of interpretation. It, all, it begins the moment you decide out of four things, which two will you choose? That strategy just goes more, is more complicated and deeper for writers so that I don't find them unrelated to uh, the political and the historical events uh, in which they write. As a matter of fact, I think in many ways it is as key, if not more central, to the political life than politics itself is. I'd just like to add one little footnote to that. And um, this, cu this culture, our culture, our society has devalued imagination. If we think about the 60s and we try to recall the voices that made sense then and make sense now, probably the first one that comes to mind for me is James Baldwin, who was a literary artist. Now we hear the Shelby Steeles of the world. We have data up the giggy. We have all the information we could use. It doesn't, it, and what's, what's it mean? The real battle is the one Tony talked about, the battle over the nature of reality, which is imagination. Imagination. But we don't believe in imagination. We don't believe in inner life. When's the last time you heard an imaginative artist, painter, writer, musician, as part of these conversations that go on about the political meaning in our times? It's true for the last 20 years that somehow or another whatever writers said has not been welcomed in this discourse. I just had one quick addition. I, I would say that the society puts a value on technological imagination, but not on literary or artistic imagination. Part of the technological innovation in a market culture is a degree to which so much talent ends up behind the commercials. So much talent ends up in PR departments and so forth. So there's, there's a sense in which I'm agreeing with you, but it's not imagination per se. Amer America has a long history of rich imagination. It's just so highly circumscribed and, 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 and evacuated by a devaluing of artistic and literary imagination that projects something beyond the dollar bill or the quick fix. I just want to say, of course, it's uh, also a question of perspective. And, and John's remarks reminded me of hearing uh, some years ago James Baldwin, I think it was on the McNeil Lair show. And the interviewer accusingly asked him about black people who were looting. This was after the um, brownout, the blackout in New York City. And Baldwin sort of stared with those eyes of his, and he said, well, the looted are looted. <laughs> I'm certainly very glad that you brought me back to the question. Um, I've also been told, by the way, that we can go on with the question and answer period until 8.45. So let's just...
question is, in case you've not heard it, um, concerns, it's complex, but it concerns uh, how members, certain members of the panel, uh, relevant members of the panel, um, feel about the fact that many young blacks are growing up knowing about uh, figures such as Malcolm and Shaka Zulu and so on, but not knowing about people like Toni Morrison or Langston Hughes who other, and others who are perceived for some reason as being somehow uh, sellouts. So there are sort of two traditions there, or perhaps one tradition, one narrow tradition, and a whole wealth of Afro-American literature being left out. Um, I don't know if th this is the, the question. Yeah, I think there's a number of dimensions to that. Uh, usually when I speak to young people, I begin with James Brown and George Clinton uh, as a hook, because they do have, a, they only appreciate James Brown. What, who, and what do they listen well, to? <laughs> 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 we let's tell we begin with Sister Soldier. Or could, we, could we? Could could please? We had to have some hook for. Oh, come oh, on! There, Can we get another question? Um, there's some truth in hip hop, though. I mean, we see we need to have a hook because I mean, young black. Well, now folk. let's get oh, another oh, question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is not the forum for the pedagogy, that's all. It's a legitimate question. How do we instruct and teach black students? That's legitimate. It's just that nobody on this panel can tell you how to form lesson plans and teach students and develop a curriculum at this, on this, at this venue, that's all. Um, let's have a question here and, yes, you, you, yes, you. Would you stand up, please? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give me the gist of the question. How do we deal with the fact that nobody reads us or something? <laughs> <laughs> Is 
that what she said? Well, I think if you are, if you choose to write, you always know that. You have to know that. You can, this is not a sweepstakes where you reach everyone like a huge, fat television show. It's not about that. I am not even certain that everybody ought to reach. I should reach everyone. I'm not certain about that. I can only do what I do best. I am not even certain that these sweeping generalizations are even appropriate. What monolithic black world are we supposed to be living in where all of the students need to read all of the books of all of the people and get all of the same information at the same time? There are members of my family who don't read my books and don't want <laughs> And when they do, don't like them. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Insist that they read not my family. I love them whether they read the books or not. And they love me. They just think I made a mistake, that's all. <laughs> I think you all heard the question. It's for Professor West. Well, George Fredrickson's book uh, entitled White Supremacy, um, a very significant text, points out that apartheid was modeled on the Jim and Jane Crowism of the U.S. South. So that the deep continuities, the similarities and elective affinities between racial domination in South Africa and racial domination in the United States, specifically the, the South, but we know, of course, Jim Crowism began in the North and moved southward. You see. Uh, the, the, the close links there are quite real, quite real indeed. Absolutely right. Just a little footnote to that. It wasn't only modeled on black-white oppression, but South Africans came and studied Indian reservations. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, what they learned in that study reflected in the homelands in South Africa. Can I also add something to that? It would seem to me very depressingly obvious 
that what you see happening in South Africa today in terms of the dismantling of apartheid legislation is partly modeled on the US. In other words, you can dismantle apartheid legislation and maintain the most important aspects of an apartheid system. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. I'd also like to make a comment on the last couple of questions that it seems to me have a lot to do with the most recent question that has been raised. It's very significant how a number of these questions are themselves a product of our segregated imaginations. Black texts are for black people, for black students, for whatever. I mean, maybe, maybe there is a power in being read by the people who perhaps most need to change. Whose problem is it? Toni Morrison asked that question. Whose problem is it here? Whose problem is it? I'm not sure I understand all the dimensions of the question, um, but let, let me just make some sort of general comment, really. Many of these questions have been directed in, in very generalizing terms about how do we make a difference, how do we make a change, or whatever. And it seems to me if, as I am, a teacher, okay, which I can only speak from that point of view at the moment, if you are a teacher, and it seems that some of those questions have come from, from that direction, you teach from where you are and from where your students are. Now, in many, many cases, and I work a lot with um, 
teachers in urban public school systems. So they are black and the majority of their students are black. To them, many of these questions say about a multicultural curriculum, whether it should be Langston Hughes or Dorothy West, are questions that they can agonize over, but they also know in the day-to-day -day situation of their schools that these debates are a luxury issue to them. They are struggling at the level of not having any texts, of not having any toilet paper, of not having any pencils, of rain coming through or whatever. I mean, you may end up <coughs> talking to them about how to get free books from publishers and things like that. There, there's, just, there's just deep, deep levels of assumptions being made here which do not reflect in any adequate way the absolute crisis of the levels of the education system that our black children are being educated in. Deep, deep levels to which, <coughs> in a material way of everyday conditions, many of these issues are already a sort of luxury of a debating point of the middle class. Do, do, do you see what I mean? They're struggling in very, very material ways. And what I'm trying to say is that unless any of our debates about a multicultural curriculum start to produce a vision of the political ways in which we can achieve a society in which we all want to live, a society in which we're talking about redistribution of wealth, redistribution of the material resources that can change people's lives in a very everyday level, that many of these other issues are sort of irrelevant until we can get to the point where a black child can go into an urban school with a breakfast in his or her stomach, ready, alert, in conditions all children in a society should be living under in order to learn, then perhaps we can actually start to debate about this or the other text. That, that's, that's the problem I'm having. It's, it's not a debate. Question away in the back, and then this gentleman here. And uh, you'd have to. Other kinds of 
if we didn't connect with the people in the audience who were trying to say, but, but what do I tell the students who are experiencing a kind of America, right, in which Los Angeles is not only a racial phenomenon, but a class phenomenon, right? How do we talk to, how do we get to that issue um, with our students? So I don't think it was a question of pedagogy and preparing, you know, uh, lesson plans or a question of a kind of split in literature, but what does, how can the racial discourse reflect the new economic reality that's going on? A quick reply from anyone? Okay. Well, I, I can say a quick uh, word about that. I mean, one of the reasons why I brought up James Brown and George Clinton is that they are writers. Right? I mean, they write text, but it's in a popular cultural form that relates directly to the life experiences of a lot of the young people who yeah. your sister right here was talking about. They're writers that don't have the depth and complexity of a number of persons around on this table, <laughs> right? Every once in a while, you do get a Smokey Robinson who can get deep, but I mean, uh, uh, but, but it's very important to talk about different forms and varieties of writing. This is why I think I... I, I would affirm so much of what Hazel said, and yet I don't want us to infer from what Hazel said that it's solely about material things. All human beings are involved in some form of cultural production, and even those who don't have toilet paper are listening to some music in order to stay alive, to stay sane, and not kill themselves, are involved in reading something, even if it's reading some visual text, as it were. Textuality goes all the way down. And that's why, as cultural workers, we have to go all the way down with it, you see. You know, when we t teach in prisons, you're teaching them certain kinds of texts that they relate to, given levels of li li literacy and so forth, but there's still textuality at work, no doubt. And so, and so my point to you is that when we talk about writing, we're talking about different forms of writing and certainly are relating it. And I think all of us would agree to the background socioeconomic conditions and the ways in which... Uh, uh, the devastation that we've seen of, of working people and poor people has to be one fundamental variable in any talk about the kinds of cultural production that all of us need in order to sustain our sense of self. Uh, uh, we have the last question here. The, the, the way in which white supremacists do come together, <laughs> transnational. <laughs> That's all. We're okay, we have been prevailed upon to uh, to accept one last question. Among the 
I want to thank you very much. I want to thank you all very much for coming. It's been a wonderful audience. It, it would be very handy. I mean, the guy made a funny point. But it would be very nice if, if the international aspect of these things was something Thanks to Pamela Pierce and also to Paul and Gideon. And Gideon. <laughs> 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 and Paul and Gideon. We're talking about, we're talking about England being... South Africa is impossible without England. South Africa is the last outpost of English colonization. It's Exactly. <laughs> 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 Good, man. How you doing? All right. All right. All right. Yeah. How are you? Oh, I got it on TV. I had it. 